G'day, g'day. My name is Ravi Nair. Welcome to the May edition of a Techno Legal Update. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I hope we are all doing well during the present circumstances. Uh, thankfully, you know, uh, the tide is turning against the virus, or at least in our immediate response to it. So that's very good. And um, virus or no virus, uh, stuff happens during the past month uh, at the intersection of law and technology, which uh, is great for us because this is a podcast that I produce on behalf of the Communications, Entertainment and Technology Law Committee of New South Wales Young Lawyers. It is produced in my capacity as the Special Interest Group Technology Officer of said committee. Um, I just want to flag in advance that we only have two articles uh, being discussed in this month's edition. Because the first article, um, I thought that I should dig a bit deeper because of the highly technical areas of law I discuss. Well, apart from that, fair winds and following seas, folks. Let's get stuck right in. Our first story is a press release coming from the New South Wales Police Force. Cybercrime squad detectives charge woman over alleged unlawful digital currency exchange. And I'd like to thank my colleague in the blockchain and law space, Jenny Leung, for bringing this to my attention. So as a bit of background, under Section 5 of the Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing Act 2006, digital currency is defined as so. Firstly, it is a digital representation of value that functions as a medium of exchange, a store of economic value, or a unit of account. Secondly, it is not issued by or under the authority of a government body. Thirdly, it is interchangeable with money, including through the crediting of an account, and may be used as consideration for the supply of goods or services. And fourthly, it is generally available to members of the public without any restriction on its use as consideration. Uh, The Act also says that digital currency can be a means of exchange or digital process or crediting declared to be digital currency by the AML CTF rules, but digital currency does not include any right or thing that, under those rules, is taken not to be digital currency for the purposes of this Act. So under subsection 6.2 Table 1 Item 50A of the Act, The exchanging of, quote, digital currency for money, whether Australian or not, or exchanging of money, whether Australian or not, for digital currency, is classed as the provision of a designated service, if the exchange is provided in the course of carrying on a digital currency exchange business, and the provision has the necessary geographical link with Australia, under subsection 6.6. Persons that provide any designated service under the Act are defined by Section 5 as reporting entities. The Act defines business, just to note, inclusively, that is, as including a venture or concern in trade or commerce, uh, whether or not conducted on a regular, repetitive or continuous basis. That is far broader than, for instance, the definition of trade or commerce under the Australian Consumer Law, where you need a pattern of commercial conduct to make out the elements rather than a one-off transaction. The person who does this exchanging of money for digital currency and vice versa has a comprehensive set of obligations under the Act. For instance, they have to perform risk-based customer due diligence of the persons they do the exchanging for, and they must report uh, certain classes of transactions to the regulator and Australia's Financial Intelligence Unit, 
the Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Centre, or OSTRAC. But most importantly, under Section 76A of the Act, a person commits an offence if they do said exchanging without being registered with OSTRAC on the Digital Currency Exchange Register, what an imaginative name, under Section 76E. As veteran law enforcement professional and author Mark Goodman put it, Moore's Law works for criminals too. So folks, criminal usage of digital currency to generate and or transmit illicit value is yet another example of the evolution of their tradecraft. Folks, unregistered digital currency exchange providers represent an emerging threat to the Australian financial system and broader society, given that they can act as facilitators for financial crime, that is, by acting as choke points for criminal and or terrorist funds. They can be exploited for money laundering purposes, namely by transferring the value of proceeds of crime generated, say, in fiat, that is state-issued currencies, into and or out of digital currency ecosystems. This is serious, given that money laundering, for instance, is considered a fundamental enabler of financial crime, and its high success rate is seen by how less than 1% of illicit monies worldwide were estimated in 2011 to be seized or frozen. As an enabler of organised crime, money laundering more generally contributes to the tens of billions of dollars that the latter costs Australian society every year, let alone the lives ruined by narcotics, taken by illicit firearms, or even the sexual exploitation of children or human trafficking, for instance. In particular, digital currency exchange providers that perform digital currency fiat conversion can be especially attractive for bad actors. This is because the overwhelmingly vast majority of criminal finance is generated in fiat currencies. Launderers wanting to thus enter digital currency markets need such exchange providers. Hence, such providers started to be regulated under the Act in 2018, following the coming into effect of legislative amendments. The Commonwealth referred to such amendments as closing, quote, a regulatory gap, given that Austrac could thus gain greater visibility of the digital currency ecosystem in Australia if digital currency exchange providers are required to register with the agencies and agency and report certain transactions to it. Austrac can thus develop better financial intelligence in collaboration with the digital currency sector, as well as its law enforcement partners to help disrupt criminal activity and terrorist plots. The International Anti-Money Laundering and Counter-Terrorism Financing Standard Setter, the Financial Action Task Force, of which note that Australia is a founding member, expanded its recommendations against which countries, AML-CTF regimes and arrangements are assessed. It made this expansion in 2018 to cover digital currencies and digital currency exchange providers. It even adopted an interpretive note to recommendation number 15 in 2019 to clarify how the broader recommendations should apply in relation to the mentioned entities. It also updated its 2015 guidance for the mitigation rather, of financial crime risk stemming from digital currencies last year as well. So, the arrest in the present matter is believed to be the first executed in Australian history in relation to unregistered digital currency exchange providers. The charges are the result of Strikeforce Kerawa, 
established by detectives from the NSW State Crime Command Cybercrime Squad in November 2018 to investigate an online money laundering syndicate operating across the state. It will be alleged that the woman arrested operated that syndicate and transacted bitcoins worth more than 5 million Australian dollars, assuming the valuation when the press release was published. So the syndicate here will be alleged to have been illegally exchanging cash for digital currency. This could be referring to the first and third stages of the process of money laundering, namely placement and integration, respectively. So a bit of money laundering 101. Placement involves injecting the proceeds of crime into the legitimate financial system, in this case by, say, converting them into digital currency or currencies. Integration follows the second stage, which is the layering of placed proceeds. That is the transmission of them through multiple transactions, such as a wire transfers to shell companies incorporated in secrecy havens. Integration involves putting those layered funds into a financial system of the criminal's choice, such as by buying, say, high-value assets with the layered funds or exchanging them for digital currencies. So after arresting her, officers searched the woman's handbag and vehicle and seized $60,000 Australian in cash, a mobile phone, and 3.8 bitcoins. I would imagine that those bitcoins had been seized by obtaining the private keys securing the bitcoin addresses in which those 3.8 bitcoins are registered on the bitcoin blockchain. In executing a search warrant at a residential unit, officers also seized documentation devices including digital currency wallets and a further $18,200 18, Australian dollars worth of Bitcoin. Again, I'm assuming the valuation is when the presser was published. So in the end, the woman was granted strict conditional bail to appear in court in July 2020. So folks, I think this case is reflective of the financial crime threat posed by digital currencies. Uh, their notoriety have, uh, has grown over the past decade, first with the rise and seizure of the Silk Road illicit dark web marketplace, which was, of course, fueled by Bitcoin. Uh, national risk assessments put out by governments for money laundering and terrorism financing refer to digital currencies a bit. Law enforcement agencies worldwide have continually identified them as a cross-cutting criminal enabler, be it for, say, you know, traditional crimes within inverted commas, like narco-trafficking or cybercrime. And in the case of cybercrime, digital currencies have been increasingly seen as either assets that hackers seek to, um, to generate illicitly by implanting what we call crypto mining malware or obtained by theft uh, from registered digital currency exchange providers, such as in South Korea. They are also used for transacting in illicit digital goods, such as stolen credit card information or hacking tools. And there have been a few cases over the years of terrorists experimenting with cryptocurrencies. The organization, the terrorist organization Hamas, developed what the New York Times termed, quote, an increasingly sophisticated campaign to raise money using Bitcoin. A woman also from Long Island pled guilty to providing material support to ISIS, including by converting the proceeds of bank fraud into Bitcoin for transmission to shell entities controlled by ISIS. In response to such innovation by criminals and terrorists, the law enforcement and regulatory community have adapted as well. 
During the same time period, police forces, other investigative agencies, and regulators around the world have trained together in how to detect and disrupt financial crime risks posed by digital currencies, and they also have collaborated on investigations such as um, your dark web marketplace seizures. So this has occurred through international fora like, of course, the FATF, the Egmont Group of Financial Intelligence Units, and the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. In Australia, at least, the Fintel Alliance is a collection of agencies like NSW Police, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, regulators like Austrac and the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, as well as members of the financial services industry. Such cooperation was evident in the present matter because New South Wales Police strike force investigators were assisted throughout the investigation by Austrac and the Criminal Intelligence Commission. Government agencies have also developed close relations more generally with, the, with their respective digital currency sectors, be it by educating these new reporting entities on how to comply with the law, uh, you know, running hackathons on re, uh, for regtech tools, or directly cooperating on investigations. That said, one wonders how this was merely the first occasion uh, on which a person was charged with running an unregistered exchange, perhaps in Australia. Police would, of course, have been aware that criminals in the state of New South Wales use digital currencies to commit financial crimes and likely would go through intermediaries that provide unregistered exchange services, whether on their own or in, or in conjunction with other money laundering services. This investigation can be microcosmic of the resources thrown at the problem. On the other hand, it could be that criminals would be more likely to launder monies through registered, regulated digital currency exchanges on account of the massive transaction volumes they can hide their transactions amongst. The success rate for money laundering more generally, a sizable portion of which passes through regulated institutions like banks and uh, remitters, can make this even more likely. Using regulated exchanges, if transactions are structured, uh, which is a crime, accordingly and or conducted on behalf of, say, straw accounts or front entities, that could raise fewer red flags than running a black market operation outside, of, uh, outside in one's apartment in the suburbs of Sydney. Criminals may even run their own regulated exchanges, as demonstrated by Austrac's 2019 suspension of the registration of two digital currency exchanges that were associated with a man charged with narcotics offences. Above all, one should note that though digital currencies are associated with some of the worst conduct humanity has to offer, their financial crime threat relative to fiat currencies and laundering typologies is much smaller. The UNODC, uh, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, reported in 2011 that, quote, the best estimate for the amount available for laundering, that is criminal monies, through the financial system uh, would equal 2.7% of global GDP or, say, 1.6 trillion US dollars in 2009. So if one removes the amount of money estimated that year, estimated in 2011 to be seized or frozen, uh, on 2009 GDP figures, at least 1.584 trillion of those monies were laundered and available for further use. By comparison, based on market capitalization, the maximum amount of value that criminals can move through, through digital currencies is short of just a few hundred billion US dollars. 
Even then, digital currencies like Bitcoin, that have public, transparent, and immutable ledgers of transactions, offer little privacy to a criminal. On the other hand, uh, investigations by agencies are stymied by the far greater opacity of, uh, of offshore secrecy havens, underground remittance networks such as Havala, trade-based money laundering, as well as shell companies and trusts established by lawyers, accountants, and trust and company service providers. The low rates of seizure of fiat monies demonstrates arguably the high success rate of, the, of these money laundering typologies. That calls into question why most criminals would even use digital currencies. And that's why I referred to them, to digital currencies, as an emerging financial crime threat. Because as even one of the police officers quoted in the presser said, cash is still king. And that is also confirmed by research conducted by multiple law enforcement agencies. So, over to you folks. Before hearing about the arrest of the woman in this matter, what did you make of the digital currency-born financial crime threat, whether internationally or in Australia? Do you think that governments should be doing more to target this financial crime threat, or should they focus on more traditional financial crime threats? How do you rate the performance of the digital currency sector in trying to mitigate the threat posed by digital currencies, and finally, what role do you think stakeholders, apart from government and industry, like you know, civil society and academia, can play in the, in the general fight against financial crime? How can they contribute to the policy process? Over to you, folks. Our second and final story comes from Ry Crozier over at itnews.com.au. Toll Group suffers second ransomware attack this year. So, said logistics company reports it's suffering a second ransomware attack for 2020, this time falling victim to a ransomware strain called Nephilim, that to less than a day after it was revealed that it had taken its IT infrastructure offline after detecting, quote, unusual activity on a number of servers. So as a bit of background, in its 2019 Internet Organised Crime Threat Assessment, Europol reported that ransomware, quote, maintains its reign as the most widespread and financially damaging form of cyber attack. The American Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is a part of DHS, defines ransomware as, quote, a type of malicious software, or malware, designed to deny access to a computer system or data until a ransom is paid. So there are dozens of different families of ransomware that uh, investigators and researchers have identified. Major attacks in recent years include those utilising the WannaCry and NotPetya strains. WannaCry costs the UK National Health Service £92 million. Merely some of NotPetya's vice, uh, victims sorry, include logistics giants Maersk and FedEx, and the pharmaceutical company Merck. The agency, uh, that is Europol, classed ransomware as, quote, the top threat of the 2019 IOCTA, highlighting that cybercriminals seem to have shifted tack from blanket WannaCry-esque attacks that did not discriminate between government, industry, and other civilian targets, to more targeted attacks against specific private and public se sector entities that yield greater profits and inflict more damage on the specific victim. 
Victims have included a slew of local governments, for instance, in the United States of America, namely Atlanta, Baltimore, and Florida. This also makes sense from a consequence management perspective for the criminal. If they are arrested, that would be on fewer computer crime charges if targets were very few. It also makes sense from a planning perspective, since having a single target enables the criminal to do more detailed reconnaissance of the victim's uh, systems, and their striking uh, requires less resources on the criminal's part. If the criminal has done their research properly, they can also have greater confidence that they have actually hit a target, which is more likely to cough up the ransom. In this regard, veteran information security professional and host of the Risky Business podcast, which I highly recommend, Patrick Gray, has considered ransomware to be the method thus for attackers to monetize their breach of victim infrastructure and actual or threatened exfiltration of victim data. This is in contrast with earlier typologies where hackers would, as I said earlier, it was, you know, a blanket render all the victim's infrastructure and data of little use for anyone by just encrypting it all unless, in theory, a ransom was paid. That said, the past few years, especially since WannaCry, have seen greater awareness of the risks posed by ransomware among government, industry, as well as civil society stakeholders. Law enforcement agencies, for instance, have conducted many public awareness campaigns. Cybersecurity bodies have issued a number of advisories, and large corporations, especially those that have been hit by ransomware, have conducted greater information security training of staff. Public and private sector entities have shared intelligence and knowledge amongst themselves on uh, emerging threats as well as risk management practices. It is partly due to the ransomware threat that organisations and governments are increasingly advising people to patch their IT infrastructure and devices regularly, that is, to regularly update the software running on them. This is not least since the success of ransomware attacks that exploit bugs in old versions of software depend on the victims not installing the patches that have been released by software developers to fix those bugs. Case in point, the WannaCry ransomware attack was so widespread and damaging because victim machines did not have installed the patches that Microsoft had released merely a few months before the actual attack. So, in the present story, the Toll Group attack is within this context of targeted uh, ransomware campaigns against high-value targets. Toll defines this attack as unrelated to the serious one it suffered in January and that to which they had just recovered from. Toll, of course, made it clear that it does not intend to pay the ransom and it was in regular contact with the Australian Cybersecurity Centre and the Australian Federal Police. The company did say when the article was published that it expected to have manual processes in place by the end of that week of publication. The Nephilim ransomware strain in question was first reported by the cybersecurity outlet Bleeping Computer in March this year, and this strain tends to threaten to publish the victim's data if the ransom is not paid within a week of the infection. So Toll Group actually confirmed on the 12th of May that the attackers in the present case had exfiltrated current commercial agreements and employee data from at least one of its servers. That said, Toll is working to identify the, quote, specific nature of that information. Given the tradecraft of the attacker and, of course, the strain, 
the apparently stolen information would likely be published on the dark web. Toll Group says it will take weeks for it to get a clearer picture of what's going on. The company has stated that the server breached, quote, is not designed as a repository for customer operational data. This can signal that Toll has, or it could have, safe backups of said data on servers outside corporate retention policies. So, to modify the words of Oscar Wilde, to suffer one ransomware attack is unfortunate, to suffer two looks like carelessness, that two in the same year. Or does it? Is trying to fight ransomware a lost cause for an organisation? Cyber risk, more generally, being risk, can never be squashed. It can only be mitigated, and even that leaves residual cyber risk. A never-ending game of whack-a-mole against attackers who continue to innovate and are financially motivated, and can execute these attacks when, when you think about it, for not a very high cost in resources, and a higher level of operational security versus, say, holding up a bank at gunpoint. This innovation is evident in the Toll Group context. The two attacks it suffered were executed using different ransomware strains. Mitigating cyber risk thus cannot be a, you know, a box-ticking exercise solved by spending money. It is about being holistic and risk-based, not buying shiny new tools purely because they make for good press releases and market announcements. It is about ingraining a cyber defense mindset among one's team members as part of organizational culture, perhaps more so than, you know, we're going to sell new stuff in a new way given that ransomware attacks can nullify those new ways to sell new stuff by forcing your organisation to revert to paper-based operations. Per guidance from the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, that is the Australian Securities and Markets Conduct Regulator, organisations must own the issues of cybersecurity strategy and governance from the board down. Boards must periodically, for instance, review progress against metrics that underpin their organization's cyber strategies. Boards must see the, quote, management of cyber resilience as a critical management tool for understanding risk status and as a tool for enabling, not limiting, the organization by anticipating scenarios and building protection against them to take advantage of market opportunities. Uh, This suggests, you know, doing more red teaming, on your cyber defences, testing out vulnerabilities that you might have. Organisations must also ensure, as per this ASIC guidance, that their governance processes are responsive to the typologies and threat intelligence they receive on today's, quote, rapidly changing cyber risk environment. It goes without saying that, quote, cybersecurity governance is clearly and visibly aligned to other organisation-wide Uh, governance processes and procedures. It is thus perhaps a good thing that more than 1,000 documents filed by public companies in the US with the US Securities and Exchange Commission in the past 12 months mention ransomware as a forward-looking risk factor, with more than 700 documents uh, such as these filed between January 1 and April 30 this year. These numbers, by the way, are expected to easily surpass the equivalent numbers in 2019. Companies are talking about ransomware regularly in their annual reports, quarterly reports, special event filings, and registration forms. They are referring to ransomware as a credible and potential future risk for their operations. Given that these filings are required to inform markets and shareholders of the 
companies' conditions and their risks. Um, it is arguably reassuring that companies are being more open uh, in this fashion versus previous years. That too after the SEC's formal guidance in February 2018, which called on companies to improve their disclosure of cyber risk, specifically mentioning ransomware. In that guidance, the SEC specifically said that, quote, it is critical that public companies take all required actions to inform investors about material cybersecurity risks and incidents in a timely fashion. So folks, throwing the floor over to you, there have been a number of cyber attacks against Aussie businesses over the years, whether during the COVID pandemic or not. So do you think that the Australian Signals Directorate should launch offensive cyber operations against the attackers behind these incidents, much like it launched uh, these ops against the overseas scammers that we talked about in the previous episode of this podcast? What do you think should be the threshold for a response from the ASD? And also, what do you think is the most important component of an organization's cybersecurity strategy? Let me know. So there you have it. There's another episode of a techno-legal update, cracked, boxed and buried, as H.G. Nelson would say. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it informative. Um, if you, again, as I always say, if you have any feedback at all, please don't hesitate to reach out to me on the socials, um, Twitter, uh, Ravi Rocks with two Ks, all lowercase. Um, you can tweet the podcast at, at Tech Legal Update, capital T, capital L, capital U. And um, yes, thank you so much for sticking with us. Thank you for listening. Um, if you feel that, again, feedback or anything you felt we could have, uh, I could have covered more um, or could have dug into a bit more, please don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, so uh, before I end with uh, a shout out, I'd like to give some book tips. Um, so I enjoyed reading The Scientist and the Spy, A True Story of China, the FBI and Industrial Espionage by Mara Christendal. I hope I've got your name right there, Mara. Um, this was a very interesting read looking at, you know, the history of industrial espionage by all sorts of countries, not just China. And it's, um, it's a very nuanced, in my opinion, exploration of the, of the legal and policy aspects of industrial espionage, especially when it's um, in the context of genetically modified corn. Uh, another one uh, which I'm currently reading is by Ben Buchanan. Uh, it's called The Hacker and the State, Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics. Um, if you want to, you know, learn about how it all works in the cybers and how, you know, these days, as they say, you know, wars are fought not by the bullet uh, in a gun, but by the taps of a keyboard. Well, this is the book for you. Um, it talks also more so about the um, the nature of signals intelligence and how uh, agencies around the world have tried to to stamp their authority over the craft in the cybers. Alrighty, so um, again, I'd like to end with a shout out to our fabulous and marvelous uh, frontline health personnel, uh, law enforcement personnel, and all the other folks working to keep us safe and healthy. Uh, it's great to see that, you know, um, in many countries around the world, certainly in Europe where I am, uh, the curves are being flattened and life is slowly getting back to where it is, um, where it was rather before the virus. But hey, look, slow and steady wins the race. 
And hey, I look forward to hearing your feedback, your ideas. And in the meantime, before we meet again uh, in June for the next edition of the Techno Legal Update, go well and cheers. <laughs>